the Jewish views on Holocaust Memorial Day. As the country recalls that fateful period in history, we hear one of the survivors' stories. Tikkun Unplugged gets funky, animated style with Soul Jump Live. And High Cancer Care challenges you to raise money for a very worthy cause. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The senior Labour peer who investigated claims of anti-Semitism at Oxford University's Labour Club has warned that a decision by a panel not to discipline two individuals risks confirming the widely held view that anti-Semitism in the party isn't taken seriously. Baroness Jan Royale, who produced the report into the club, said she was deeply disappointed by the decision and added that it didn't bode well for the outcome of the inquiry into Ken Livingstone's behaviour. The Union of Jewish Students branded it disgraceful and said an atmosphere in the Labour Club has been created in which anti-Semitism could thrive without fear of being challenged. In Germany, the country's highest court has ruled that there are no legal grounds to ban the far-right National Democratic Party. The decision disappointed Jewish leaders in Germany and abroad. It's the second time that the court in Karlsruhe has considered barring the NPD, which is anti-foreigner and anti-European Union, and belittles the Holocaust. The former American president, Barack Obama, has asked Ben Rhodes, who was closely involved in putting together the 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which Israel deplored, to serve on the US Holocaust Memorial Council, Rhodes, who has a Jewish mother, has been a vocal critic of Israeli settlement policies, leading some people to ask whether the appointment was a spiteful one by President Obama. In Israel, a Palestinian man who attempted to stab an Israeli soldier at a West Bank checkpoint has been shot dead. The incident occurred in the Palestinian city of Tulkarm. The Israel Defence Forces said no soldiers were injured after the man drew a knife and ran towards the checkpoint. The man was later identified as a 44-year-old married father of five who held an Israeli national identity card. And our last item this week, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has written a moving account of his recent visit to Auschwitz in which he said the Nazi death camp defies description. The Archbishop toured the site as part of an Anglican delegation. The conditions were freezing, with temperatures dipping to minus 14 degrees, leading Archbishop Welby to comment that he had layers and layers of clothing on and was still cold to the core. The inmates wore pyjamas and clogs. He wrote that the camp's victims were dehumanised and that the whole delegation reflected on the human capacity for evil. And that is the news this week. We've got Sport Next with Andrew. Thank you, Viv. Israeli and Jewish interest at this year's Australian Open has all but ended after the third day of action, after Dudi Sela, Noah Rubin and Diego Schwartzman all lost their second round matches. Coupled with Camelia George's first round exit and Amir Weintraub and Julia Glushko losing in the qualifiers, remaining interest lies in the doubles competition, which sees Schwartzman, Jonathan Ehrlich and Scott Lipsky in action. Elsewhere, Former world champion boxer and ordained orthodox rabbi Yuri Foreman saw his return to the ring end in a brutal fourth round knockout. The 36-year-old was looking to become a two-time world champion, having previously won the WBA super welterweight title in 2009, but he was easily beaten by Cuban Erislandi Lara. 
And finally, a 17-year-old Israeli has shocked the racing world by winning one of the most challenging races in the world. Gev Seller won the Africa Eco Race, an event which attracts experienced drivers from all over the world as they race 6,500 kilometres across the Sahara Desert. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is news editor Justin Cohen and foreign editor Stephen Orezchuk. Welcome to you both. Now, this may come as a little bit of a shock to some people, but the words labour and anti-Semitism may have managed to make their way to the front page once more. Why? Yes, I'm afraid it's back to the start this week, back to the Oxford Union Labour Club, where it all began back in February of 2016, those days when Labour and anti-Semitism weren't words that were unfortunately heard too often in the same sentence. You will remember that this all began with Alex Chalmers, the then chair of the Oxford Union Labour Club, resigned, saying that uh, members of the club had some kind of problem with Jews. Various allegations surrounding the Oxford Union Labour Club followed, and then it really gave, gave way to all the other claims of anti-Semitism around the party and the suspensions and the expulsions and so on. But that's where it all began, and, and this week we finally heard after several months of investigation, that the Labour Party are going to do nothing about those two individuals who are implicated in this investigation. You'll remember that Baroness Royal, former leader of the Labour Party in the House of Lords, reported several months ago that she found instance of anti-Semitism within the club, though she didn't say whether they were deliberate or not. She couldn't ascertain that. This week, a disputes panel within the NEC decided that... Although the party itself, party officials who had investigated this, recommended a warning against these two individuals, they in fact that they weren't going to do that and they decided to overturn it. That's what really sticks in the throat about this case, the fact that the party itself decided that there ought to be warnings issued and this panel, in its great wisdom, has decided to overturn that. So naturally, Stephen, this is going to be a very disappointing conclusion to a story that has rolled on for the best part of 2016 and has even got this new year underway. Oh, I'm sure it will roll on even further than 2016. There is dialogue with the Oxford University Labour Club and the Union of Jewish Students and the Jewish Society at at Oxford University. So whether the Labour Party higher-ups have decided that, okay, fine, there's engagement, there's a training issue, I'm not sure. But the message that it sends out, as Justin quite rightly said, has reverberated widely. It is quite important then in that case to clarify that this is not necessarily the Labour Party's decision not to do this, isn't it? It's this panel that you've said has decided. So does that mean that technically that us as a community still really can't hold the Labour Party to count? Because it's not necessarily them saying they don't want to do anything about it. In fact, on the contrary, leader Jeremy Corbyn has said that he's got no room for anti-Semitism or racism of any kind in this party. Yeah, this was a, a, a panel charged by the Labour Party as part of its processes to make up their mind about what to do once the case came back from the party who, who actually investigated this. The significant thing, though, is this committee is made up of members of the NEC. The NEC is quite finely balanced between the hard left and the moderates. However, it then comes down to who actually turns up. 
on the day to make their decision. If the hard left decide to pack the the meeting and make sure all their people are there, and it tends traditionally to be the hard left that are more likely to turn up to these kind of process meetings. If that happens again, for example, when the case of Jackie Walker comes to this committee, then obviously there'll be concern, unfortunately, that she could be let off again. We'll see. Well, I'm sure that we will see what happens in the coming weeks as it does indeed continue to unfold. Unbelievably enough, there is other news in the paper this week and it's to do with a peace summit from France. That's quite right. In Paris, there were 70 countries represented this weekend for, as you say, a peace summit. The French idea was that we'll bring all these countries together, we'll get them to say something and this will give a push to the Israelis and the Palestinians to re-engage, to get back on the negotiating table and to finally settle a two-state solution. Britain did attend, but at a very low level. They sent an official from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the head of the Near East desk. They didn't send a minister, a junior minister. They didn't send Boris Johnson. And they said beforehand that they did not feel that this summit was taking place at the right time and that the two parties involved, the two parties that are the subject matter, Israelis and Palestinians, were not going. So in, a, in essence, they said there's no point, especially with a new incoming US president whose policies on the Middle East are largely unknown. So they said that from the word go. They did not sign the communique that emerged on Sunday. And on Monday, when the Paris summit organizers took that communique to the EU foreign Affairs Council in Brussels, Britain did not sign that either. A couple of other Eastern European countries weren't happy with it and didn't sign it. And the EU's head of foreign affairs said this wasn't a, a British torpedo or a British veto as had been initially reported. Should we be disappointed as a Jewish community that this hasn't been backed by the UK or was this a sensible move? How are we as a community supposed to respond to this news? You'll remember only a few weeks ago we were talking on this show about how the UK had, well, reportedly been instrumental in bringing forward the motion against settlements at the United Nations Security Council. Obviously, there's a lot of consternation within the community about that, criticised by the Board of Deputies, by the Conservative Friends of Israel expressing disappointment. Three weeks later, we have a situation where Britain's taking a lead possibly in the other direction, they're, they're standing with Israel on, on this because you know, Israelis said they weren't going to attend, that the, the event was futile in the words of Benjamin Netanyahu. And so certainly I, I think supporters of Israel ought to be welcoming this. And, and hopefully this is not just about gesturing to the new incoming White House, but a recognition of perhaps that the kind of moves that happen at the United Nations on a on, on an international basis do absolutely nothing to further the peace process. Intriguing times. OK, well, we've got time for one more. 30 under 30. Sadly, something I can't be entered in for anymore. So what is... Uh, Surely what's, not. What's this year's yeah. got in store? Yeah, well, so this is actually the first time we've run 30 under 30. Isn't remember? it 40 under 40, 40 normally? Exactly, exactly. Ah, that, that's how it all began. We, we've done two 40 under 40s now, and the last one was a few years back. We felt that we can't run 40 under 40 every year. It'll be quite repetitive. So we decided to vary it a bit. We're going to introduce 30 under 30, also 18 under 18. 
the idea of the project, of course, is to profile and also highlight and celebrate those individuals who are either having an impact on the future of the community or are poised to do so. And that particularly applies to the 30 and the 30. The 18 and the 18 is slightly different, of course, because it's going to be hard to identify those who are already having an impact on the community. However, we're looking to celebrate those who are still at school, who are doing amazing work in fundraising, perhaps at the start of uh, young political advocacy in arts, in all sorts of areas. So we're very excited. I have to say that the 40 under 40 was perhaps the project in the history of the paper that garnered more interest and more excitement and more of a build-up online and in the paper. And so we're, we're looking forward to the launch couple of we've got about five weeks for people to nominate and then we will start building up the ordered list in the case of 30 under 30 and profiling all those people and around just after Pesach we'll reveal that final list. Thank you both very much indeed. That's all we've got time for for a look at the paper for this week. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. Since 2001, every year around the coming week, the country marks Holocaust Memorial Day. In 2017, it falls on Thursday the 26th of January. Events will happen up and down the country to commemorate one of the darkest periods in history. To make sure that the Jewish Views plays our part in ensuring the Holocaust is never forgotten or twisted, we thought that we'd hear from someone who knows best. This is just one Holocaust survivor's story in their own words. My name is Bernd Koshland, and I come. I came from Fürth in Bavaria. It's a town near Nuremberg. The town that I came from was a very staunch Jewish town, going back for several centuries. In fact, Jerusalem of southern Germany, it's been called. Obviously, the beginnings of Hitler's regime I would not remember because I was far too young. But as I grew a little bit older into, I suppose, five, six years old, sheltered by my parents from a lot of things, things were happening around me. It was directed against German Jews, of course. The Nuremberg laws, the infamous laws which restricted certain Jewish activities and lives gave me a middle name of Israel because my first name, Bernd, wasn't Jewish enough. Women whose name was Jewish or men's name that was sounded Jewish like Isaac or Sarah was okay for women there to take the name Sarah as well. Interestingly enough, that name was removed from my documents in 1947 when I had to register as an alien And the police officer asked me whether I would like to keep that name. And I said, no, it is a reminder of my past. It's a name that was not given to me by my parents, but by a regime whose aim was to wipe out Jewish life. My father, who had fought in World War I on the side of Germany, as did many thousands of other Jews, was made jobless because he was a Jew, his job being that of a shoe representative for a company. Life must have got a little bit harder, father not earning anything, but as a kid I didn't notice very much of it. What really came to mind 
was the event of Kristallnacht, Crystal Night of 1938, November 38, when throughout Germany a pogrom broke out, pre-planned in some ways, but triggered off by the murder of a German official at the Paris embassy. It's interesting to say that it was triggered off because evidence that I have from my hometown, historical documents, was that, for example, the fire brigade was not to interfere in any fires unless it disturbed a non-Jewish place. Anyway, the pogrom broke out. In my hometown, we were assembled in an open space. That night uh, is a night that I will remember of standing there, of probably the noises around of shoutings, dogs barking or whatever, and the sky lit with red as the synagogues in my town, there were several in one spot, were burnt down, as were th many hundreds of other synagogues, I think a thousand in all, that were destroyed that night. Synagogues that had been there for a long time. Reaction to Kristallnacht was the pressure here in this country on the government to do something for the situation of Jews in Germany. A number of uh, adults, of course, were able to come as domestics, gardeners, or whatever they were, even though there might have been lawyers or, I don't know, judges in their own hometown in Germany or Austria. One reaction was also the founding of the kinder transport, which resulted out of pressure being put on the government by various sources, Jewish, non-Jewish, such as Quakers, speech by no baker in the house. And the result was that the government decided that they would allow 10,000 children into this country on conditions. Condition one was there had to be a guarantor of 50 pounds for each child coming in, not to be a burden, and also to ensure that when the time came, there would be sufficient funds to migrate further. One that was thankfully never enforced, although a lot of kinder on the kinder transport did go abroad after the war when they could. And another condition was that children had to be no older than about 17, although one or two probably older ones came. With the kinder transport, the first arrived in December 1938, 1st, 2nd of December from, I believe, Berlin. And it went on until the outbreak of war. I sort of envisage sitting in the lounge of our flat, a father, mother, and my older sister, older by several years, sitting there, and I'm being told that you're going to another country, to England, for safety. Promise was made that we will join you as soon as possible. Unfortunately, that promise was never to be, as both my parents were deported to a place up in Latvia, Riga, 
and Izbika, where they eventually met their ends. The other promise they made for a child, and this one for some reason I always remember, is that they'd buy me a suit with long trousers when I would be bar mitzvah, and of course also not fulfilled. For a child, such a promise that we will rejoin you soon was enough. Whether I was happy to agree to go or not, I wouldn't remember. The answer was that I was going. And looking back and thinking, what did my parents feel? How did they feel that here they were sending away their son and later my sister, some months later? Would they ever see them again? Who knows, what were their feelings? And interestingly enough, I have right sitting next to me on my wall an inscription in a chumash in a Pentateuch that my father gave me to say, this is uh, welfare, this, you look after yourself and keep studying Torah. When my sister came to visit me one year, I showed her that and she said, that's not my father's real writing. He must have been shaking as he wrote that. What my mother felt, I can't tell you. I have no recollection of that. How did I feel? I don't know. I felt that here I was going to a foreign country and was not knowing the language. I had my parents taught me a sentence, I'm hungry, may I have a piece of bread, which was quite useful, but uh, I never had to use it. I came to England by boat to Southampton, where I was admitted on the condition that I didn't take up any work. And from then on, my life changed. I was sent to a hostel where I was the youngest in Margate, a Jewish hostel run by B'nai Brith. I was there until evacuation from Margate to a non-Jewish family in the Midlands, where I stayed for about nine, ten months, and then to another hostel near High Wycombe, run by an Orthodox synagogue in Golders Green at the time, and still there. And I was with it until 1948, both in a place near High Wycombe and in London. Eventually, I felt that life had to go on. I left school. I'd wanted to teach, but somehow didn't work out teaching French. Instead, I introduced college where I trained as a minister, took up communities, two or three of them, eventually married and settled down to a life and left that to go to teaching for the rest of my time till I retired in 1995. What is important is that whilst I don't forget the past, and certainly not when I heard that my parents had met their fate, to talk about it, to remember it, that it happened. No, I won't forget it. If I may compare it to a bucket catching drips of water coming from, say, the ceiling, each one of us is like that drip of water coming into the bucket. Eventually that bucket is full, and eventually, maybe, hopefully, please God, it will make life that much better. But how that's done is up to the individual and on 
uh, this occasion of the Holocaust Memorial Day, we remember the past, but also look to the future. The remarkable Bernd Koshland recalling his story of survival there as the country prepares to mark National Holocaust Memorial Day on Thursday the 26th of January. For more information on Bernd or indeed any of the other survivors, then please do visit the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust's website, which is hmd.org.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by the founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz, and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. We'll be discussing the potential threat to Judaism posed by the far sides of either political stance. Plus, Diana Toman should be speaking to Alexandra Morris from Chai Cancer Care about a new fundraising initiative. But first, Tikkun has often brought live music to the community with their series Tikkun Unplugged. Later this month, they're planning on trying something a little different with an event called Soul Jump, live in concert. It promises funky animated antics and great grooves, thanks to urban music band Soul Jump. To find out more, entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to Martin Nyman, an animator behind Soul Jump. Kate started by asking Martin to tell us how he would best describe the band. It's an animated band. It contains animations and music together with comedy. Animated band? You mean yeah. like musical instruments band? Yes. It's um, five different cartoon characters that each play different instruments and perform. And each of those characters representing an instrument or they, the, the music goes alongside them? Is there a story? There is, yes. There's a programme that we've developed called The Soul Jump Show that we're pitching to some children's channels. The characters are kind of in a world where they're trying to get their music off the ground and they live in a world called Nopestons, kind of a fictional world. Um, and the characters are each... each have, so, for example, if you've got Colin, who's the drummer, and he's an egg... And you've got Ricky, who's the front man of the band, and he sort of sings and plays electric guitar. So you've got Jerichim, who's a kind of big party animal and the rap artist in the band. You've got Joy, who is kind of female singer and plays bass guitar, easygoing hippie character. You've got Raquel, who's Ricky's younger sister, and she's a bit of a goth wannabe kind of into rock and that kind of thing and you've also got dj sketch who's also does some mixing and he's the only 3d animated character in the band as well if you think of say spongebob and even the simpsons really it's for kids but it's also for the whole family has been written in a similar way to to have broad appeal how did you get here what what brought you here you're a musician by background more animation background in a way but I guess I, growing up, I wrote lots of songs and I drew lots of comics and made up characters. I was coming up with ideas that are in music and, and cartoons. Then I did an animation degree and I just kind of started writing songs quite a lot after my degree. And I developed a sketch show with some of the characters from Soul Jump were in the show. And the whole thing kind of converged a bit. And I thought, oh, maybe these characters could could be part of a band. I kind of slowly started to put the two things together and, and arrived at Soul Jump. And how did you choose the people who went, who come along with you? Those who are also in the band, presumably different people who, who voice it. That's on the kind of cartoon side in terms of the character voices. I suppose sometimes I do the, the voice of the main character, Ricky. We 
been we're kind of looking for a new voice for him as a character but then the singing voice we're now on our third lead singer of the band so it's kind of evolved a little bit now i do the voice of the rap artist and the drummer colin the egg character but in real life we we've got a rap artist who's going to do the rap at, at our upcoming gig Colin doesn't really sing in in the van, so he's just playing the drums. The visually, um, it's quite unusual. It's not like a standard cartoon, if you're thinking of Scooby-Doo or whatever cartoons come to mind. Can you explain how it does visually have a very unusual appeal? The kind of world that Soul Jump live in, it's, it's a bit like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so they're kind of living in a real world. And cartoon characters are seen as misfits a bit in this world, so they're kind of seen less likely for their music to take off and also going against them that they're all different styles so they're not even one style of animation so they've got these two things going against them in in the world of the show the origins really was because it came from a sketch show where they were just different style sketches that's kind of the real reason why, why that came about but it kind of goes with the idea that they're misfits as well because the styles are kind of weirdly not going together. <laughs> not, not that it's reflecting any any specific characters. Or did you base any of the characters, misfits or no, on people that you know? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. we're so, getting there now, eh? <laughs> yeah, I guess the character Ricky, who's the kind of really the central character of the show, he is sort of a bit based on me, really, because he's a bit of a dreamer and he's trying to kind of get the music off the ground. If you think of The Muppet Show as a bit of a reference to the feeling of the show, Kermit the Frog is is kind of a bit of a hero, but he can be a bit fumbling sometimes, but he his friends kind of support him, but he is kind of also the leader. He needs his friend's support. And even in The Muppets, they're all a bit crazy and a bit different from each other. But if you're watching, say, a Muppet film or The Muppet Show, they all kind of come together and, and they all pull through. And it's a bit, it's all about friendship, really, and how they all somehow get through their friendship. What were your musical influences? Quite a mixture of stuff I listened to. I really liked the band Bastille. I grew up on Michael Jackson and I listened to lots of bands like Boys to Men growing up. And these days I kind of listen to a huge variety of pop music. And I guess with Soul Jump, the sound is, is a bit urban and it's a bit pop music, but it's a bit of a blend of genres as well. There's a bit of rock in there and yeah, quite broad. I mean, Black Eyed Peas is a bit of a reference to kind of a, the type of thing we, we, we're going for with the sound of Soul Jump. Who's going to see this? Is it going to be broadcast? I mean, will the general public at some point be able to have a look and see it on any particular broadcast mediums? Are it going to stay as a, an internet, YouTube type thing? Our sort of plan A is for it to become a mainstream show, particularly channels like Nickelodeon or CBBC or Cartoon Network. Ideally, we'd, we'd want to get in with a big broadcaster and we're, we're sort of having some discussions there. But at the same time, we could launch it as a purely digital show that's on YouTube potentially and, and get funding to produce episodes there. So we're, we're sort of open to both possibilities. At the moment, we're continuing to develop both sides of Soul Jump. So the music, we're trying to get signed in real life, as well as obviously get a broadcaster on board. And you're bringing it to Tikkun. Tell us about, is it a show? How's that going to work? On the night, there's going to be a lead singer, Nathan, who's playing Ricky. Um, there's going to be Yuval who is going to be DJ Sketch on, on keyboard and various instruments. You've got Dominique, who's playing Jerichim, who's going to be rapping. And I'm going to be supporting some vocals as well. And then you've got animations projected on the screen behind us. All the songs have got different animated kind of graphics and music videos to go with them, as well as some kind of funny animated inserts, which are kind of from the Soul Jump show. Right. So it's a whole show with animation, with live music. And how do we get to see it? 
if you go to sort of Ticken's website to book a ticket and then turn up at around nine o'clock, come along and with seats about 100 people, sit down, get yourself a drink from the bar and have fun. <laughs> it sounds excellent. And we're talking yeah. kids as well? The Ticken gig, because Ticken is, is for 25 to 40 year olds, that's really the sort of demographic for that gig. But ultimately, we're planning on doing gigs for kids as well as all ages, really. Animator Martin Nyman talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about his animated band Soul Jump, which will feature as a Tikkun Unplugged event on the 28th of January. For more information, go to tikkun.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze, a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, it's no hidden secret that charities, Jewish or otherwise, heavily depend on the efforts of their supporters to try and raise funds. Chai Cancer Care is starting 2017 with a new fundraising initiative, Chai Challenges You. It involves supporters taking part in various fundraising activities, and community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more about it for us by speaking to Chai patron Alexandra Morris. Diana started by asking Alexandra to tell us more about the new campaign. It's part of a a bigger initiative for Chai Cancer Care that's called Chai Challenges You to encourage people to step outside of their comfort zones and do something real and for Chai, raising money and awareness for Chai. This particular challenge is um, something we came up with um, to enable people to do something closer to home that doesn't, in theory, take too much time out of their busy schedules and we're planning to try and do 24 peaks in 24 hours. What do you mean by peaks? Well, in the Lake District, there are a number of mountains and we're going to go up and down, not fully down them, but up and down those peaks 24 times, it appears. Physically? We can do do that, yep, yep. You're having to get a group of people who are going to literally go up and down with their mountaineering boots on. Yes, I have a number of crazy ladies who are intrigued and are happy to come with me on this challenge oh you're going to you're going to be their leader yes well there will be a professional showing us the way i don't want anyone to take the wrong step i can hear health and safety beginning to rear its ugly Um, head we're doing it in partnership with charity challenge which is a very very good organization that has helped us with previous challenges that we've done right we started off in 2013 with 23 ladies going up kilimanjaro and back down again. We all safely made it. And then two years later, we were in Iceland and we trekked across the ice fields. Wow, this is getting more impressive by the minute. Uh, tell me, do these intrepid travellers or mountaineers or whatever you would call them, do they pay you? They contribute They pay their way. They pay, they their, pay way. their own way. Yes. And they raise vital funds for high. So far, we've raised £430,000 over the last few years for high. Have you really? For different different things. The first challenge, the Kilimanjaro challenge, was for the child and adolescent services. The second one was for the image room. And this one that we're planning to do 
is uh, for the home support service. Right. For Hai to go out and see people when they can't get out of their house or don't feel like getting out of their house. I'm wondering, this may be a, a rather um, impertinent question, if I can put it like that, but when you're asking the... I'm assuming you're asking the general public, yes. the Jewish general public, mm-hmm. to think up new challenges? Are you sort of putting out ideas to them or hoping they'll bring back ideas um, to it's you? It's a mixture of either. Many people come up with things. Uh, I tried to get some friends to... The, initially, I tried to get some friends to jump out of an aeroplane with me, but um, nobody seemed to want to do that. <laughs> so we decided to climb a mountain instead. Right. And we, we offer things that people might want to do, and people are welcome to come and suggest anything. Good. It sounds as if it's going to involve an enormous amount of organisation on somebody's part. Well, Charity Challenge helped us with that. Oh, um, our job is to get trained up and keep trekking and walking and getting ourselves fit. Right. Now, let's. Uh, I did last year interview the woman who is, I think, the CEO of, of High. Chair. The uh, chair. Louise Hogger. Yes, that's yes. right. And she told me what high means and what it does for the Jewish community who mm. are suffering from cancer. Could you expand on that? And I understand that yes, painful though it may mean course. to talk about it, that your sister-in-law had in fact had got cancer yes, and um, passed away. That's right. Four and a half years ago, my sister-in-law Amanda was diagnosed with um, stage three cancer. Um, it was in several parts of her body and that was what galvanised me re- really into getting involved more with high. She used high services, mainly their alternative therapies, which she very much enjoyed the healing and the reflexology services that they offer. And I wanted to do something a little bit more to support her. I felt, we all felt as a family, a bit useless. You know, you can make a Friday night dinner, you can sit next to a hospital bed and you feel a bit helpless. And I, I wanted to do something real. A and more tangible. Yes, and in support of her and sort of get myself outside of my comfort zone as well. She was going through all sorts of difficulties and having to undergo chemo and did it with such a wonderful sense of spirit and and positivity and I felt well what can we do to show our support and walk alongside her on her cancer journey and you're what's called a patron is that right yes apparently yes (laughs) but I'm I'm mostly help with the um, high challenges you initiative that's my that's my main thing that that's, I do. That's your main thing. And presumably that all started three or four years yes, ago. Yes, that was exactly the time. And has grown yes. since then. And I think people have got on board and kind of want to support it in that way, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an active and tangible way, because it is a difficult time for people. It is um, a hard one to show support. And this is a very real way of doing that. Alexandra Morris talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about High Cancer Care's new fundraising initiative, High Challenges You. For more information, then you can always go to High Cancer Care, C H A I, Cancer Care, or one word, dot org. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Phil, Dave and me today is founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts, and the voice, that is, Jeremy Jacobs. The subject today is based on an item we heard in the news with Viv a little earlier on. A high court in Germany has ruled that it can find no legal grounds to ban the far-right National Democratic Party. We thought we'd ask, 
What sort of threat do the far right and indeed the far left poses to Jews, not just in Germany but around the world? Is it unjust to presume such political persuasions don't have a place in modern society? Or is it stifling freedom of speech? And let's start with you, Judy. Do you think that banning the far of either political sides is ever justified? No, I don't. You can sometimes tell people what to do, yes. You can, and even what to say. You can't tell people what to think. You can't tell people how to feel. And I don't see why we would want to. Well, let's see what you think. I'm in agreement, Clive, with ah. Judith, uh, as it happens. I don't think you should ban political parties. Even if they're the sergeant Robert, even if they're the far, far right. No, you can't. You cannot ban a party because they pose themselves as far right. It's what they come out with. Now, if they're coming out with hate speech or, or that sort of thing, then yes, of course, there is a possibility. I think one party in the UK has been disbanded just recently, but that wasn't because they were a political party. That's because they were engaged in, in, in hate speech and so on. So on, on that basis, yes, I do. But on the other hand, you can't just ban things left willy-nilly. I think it's completely wrong. Now, hang on a second. I think it depends what one's definition of the far right is, because, or indeed the far left, because if you were to look at a political party who brand themselves as a political party and have far right views, then are you suggesting to me that, let's just say, a terrorist organisation such as Hamas or whoever else then went to go and pose themselves as a political party. You're saying you wouldn't want to see them banned. In, well, how are Hamas going to find themselves over here? I mean, look, you could, you, <laughs> we, we do have this in, in, the, in the UK under, under the guise of Sinn Féin with their links to the IRA. You know, can you, do you ban Sinn Féin? Well, would you? Yeah. That's the question. I think, so, I think, I think we're on, I very, don't, I don't I think we're on very dangerous ground. You start banning I don't people. think you can... as judge and jury. Yes, you can't do that. I don't think you can judge Sinn Féin in the same way as people uh, in, the, in the 1930s could feel about the uh, Nazi party, for example. And we're talking about sometimes, I'm not saying all times, but we're talking about sometimes parties on the far right that are particularly not just anti-Jewish, but anti-Muslim, anti-all sorts of things. And or indeed the far left in this day and age. Yes, yes. absolutely. But people are anti something or other very often and you that means you ban every party uh, and, and if nobody is going to support them nobody is going to vote for them or give them money they won't be there anyway yeah. you defeat these sort you defeat extremism with arguments not with banning people through through legislation you start doing that they go underground there were, let's go back wrong. to let's go back to nazi germany there were many 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 good and i've studied this at great length there were many very very good germans in germany who were anti nazi mm. and they ended up later on being either killed or put into concentration camp or having to escape now if you just say let them go along as the Germans did, what do you end up with? Yes, I'll take your point, but I think I think we discussed this in, in previous programmes, Clive. I think the German democracy, such as it was in the late twenties and early thirties, is not as robust as, as as modern democracies or modern Germany. And I don't think that set of circumstances could be repeated again. I know you one should one should never say never again, but the point I'm saying is I think democracies nowadays are far stronger. But yes, of course it can happen if bad people are putting in control. 
But is the problem that we don't necessarily give maybe society enough due credits, that we don't trust the public enough? As you said, oh. Judy, if someone doesn't vote or someone doesn't yeah. back a party, or it, it doesn't have to just be a party, it let's be, be honest, anything. it could be anything. If someone doesn't back it or enough people don't back it, is that enough to say, well, it will never take over, it will never yeah, we work? Make- this great big fuss about how much money footballers are paid. Well, if people stop going to matches... Not quite. How will they be paid so much? <laughs> it's down to us. We've got to take responsibility. Yeah, but how do we take that responsibility, by I suppose? That's voting, the question. By not supporting. But then do you say that is it down to us, as it were, as voters or whatever. I mean, we're talking about political parties here at the moment, but like I said, it is a broader subject. It is the far right or the far left of any persuasion, whether it is a political party or a terrorist organisation, whoever it is. The point is that are you saying that the onus falls on us as supporters of that to prevent it from happening rather than actually trying to talk to and, dare I say, even reason with individuals who maybe have a slightly clouded view on society by comparison to yes. other people? Yes, I think, I think, I think the second point Look is. what's happening in Iraq at the moment. The ISIS, they're fighting ISIS like mad, the Iraqi people, but they're having a terrible reaction to what's happening in Iraq, and people are still being killed. And even when they try and save people, this is just, an, at one time, an ordinary party, ISIS, as far as the people in Iraq were concerned. And now look what they're doing. Mm. When you say an ordinary party, I mean, the so-called Islamic State has never really seen themselves as a party, have they? Well, the equivalent of, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a political... Well, it's a following. It's a cult following. It, yeah, it? but it's a political group. Sure, but I wouldn't say. I agree with Phil. It's not necessarily, mm. in, <laughs> not necessarily a political party per se. And again, I don't think you compare what happens in the Middle East uh, and their political systems uh, compared to what happens in the West, Clive. Well, this party that, that's being told that is legal in Germany, mm-hmm. it's already known by everybody that they have marched up and down mm. saying, for example, anti-Semitic things. Okay, but if there is no legal basis in Germany for not banning them, there's no, there is no legal basis for banning them. However absurd or upsetting that may be, it'll just go undercover if if it's banned. Because it, as I said before, it's not going to stop people feeling and mm. thinking it. Sure. As you know, we do stream at the Schmooze live on our Facebook page, and I'm delighted to say that Wayne has messaged us to say Ooh. ban everything. Then you end up with a dictatorship. Who's right? Yes. And who's the one in charge of the banning? Exactly. But we're not banning everything. We're banning those political parties on the far right or the far left who have shown a great passion against certain people. Should we maybe rephrase this? What about if we were to take out the term political parties? What if we were to say ban behaviour? Ban behaviour that indicates hatred towards others that indicates maybe a longing for an annihilation of a certain group of people you know you can't get much more hatred in you than that can you than wanting to see someone wiped off the face of the planet why is it that that sort of activity can't be banned and is that going to be just in europe in germany or worldwide one one could argue it's in civilized society we're going to ban it who's we And and what gives us the right to do it anyway 
What and gives us the right is that I think that everybody, the majority of people, has the right to live in a peaceful society where everyone is allowed to live the life as they so wish to do so. Not without wanting to be at the threat of someone who doesn't want that person to merely Why? exist. Is it not a fact? I've been told this by a rabbi in this country, in England, who said to me he is frightened of walking around the streets of London sometimes wearing a kippah because he doesn't know what might happen to him. That somebody will say, oh, look, there's one of those Jews. I'm going to go and... Well, yeah, well, OK, OK, fine. So, that was... OK, of course. And uh, if you've got a right-wing or left-wing party, which is anti-Jews, Muslims, whatever, they're capable of doing that, aren't they? I'm not saying they're not, but anybody's capable of doing that. We've always had uh, some degree of anti-Semitism. My, my, my mother tells me, and my father tells me, there were fascists at Whitestone <laughs> Pond in the 1930s. Thank God we don't have that anymore. You know, if you're going to walk down a road with a kippah, someone somewhere at some point is going to say something. It's, 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 it's human nature. It's going to happen. But you surely can't be excusing that. No, you say I'm it's not, human I'm nature. Not, I'm not I mean, excusing I'm not, I'm not, shouldn't have no, to put up I'm with not, that. Of course they shouldn't. But it happens. It happens, and it, yes, but I think you're right. How you, you should ban behaviour, certainly. But we don't live in fear. I don't live in fear. Your no. rabbi might. Your, your rabbi might, but you know, I don't. Ah, but I, then again, but we again, don't, don't live well, in fear because we maybe look more secular. But if you're talking no. about someone of a rabbinic persuasion yes, who perhaps walks around wearing certain religious regalia that could certainly indicate or certainly tell others what his religious beliefs are and he does feel threatened, well then surely that is something to be concerned about. Yes, of course, I don't know of course it's concerning, but it's always been, it always has been. I don't, I don't, I don't see the difference between 2017 and, uh, and 1917 or 1957. It's always I, been there in this country. The difference the... between 2017 and 1917, sorry Judy, yes. is that at 1917 the Holocaust hadn't happened and we hadn't necessarily as a people learned from the most hideous time in our history. So you say, what's the difference? The difference is that we now know the extremes of what humans can do mm -hmm. to make sure that they get their way. And it's, oh. And if they make a political party, it's going to make it even easier for them to try and get their way, as Phil puts it. OK, I work for a Jewish organisation. I run workshops for them. Jamie, many of you know, Jewish Association mm -hmm. yes. of Mental Illness. And... I go to the Finchley one when I work there on the bus because I can't park and I have all my work in a bag that has Jewish writing, Hebrew writing on it. And, and a couple of the members have said to me, aren't you scared of coming out with that bag? Never crosses my mind and it hadn't until they mentioned it. And yeah, it wouldn't stop me any more than when we had the atrocities in London and and the bombs, it didn't stop me going to London. Well, yeah, that, the reason for that is because there is no political party in this country which is trying to get people worked up about Jews, Muslims, whatever, all sorts of minorities. That they there are some who might argue against that, but anyway, yes. keep yes, going. Yes, all right, but I mean, <laughs> but in reply to, to, to yes. Judy's okay, argument, mm, mm. I mean, it's absolutely, it's, it's not the same thing. If you have a political party which is sending messages out all the time against Jews or Muslims or Catholics. Well, oh, but your they'll, rabbi they'll be, with the kippah bad. was the same thing. It was how people would identify him or people would identify me with this bag. And I wasn't nervous at all. Yeah, but the, the, the party just has been banned. I forget, but perhaps Phil... You yes, know, in this country, a party has been, been done. So, uh, OK, OK, it's been banned and on the same news report. 
Okay, so they'll go and call themselves something else next week. I mean, you cannot stop people from holding views. Yeah, yeah. Right, so what you, you do it through education and, and, and understanding and, and, and confronting these people with arguments. It's, it's all t- too simple. I understand what you're saying. Okay, so you, so, you want to, so, you, so you think there should be a sledgehammer to, to, to hit these... Not a sledgehammer, but or do these... Will you put them in prison? What do you do with them? But these parties should not... Which parties? On either side, far going Where, to the far right or the far well, what's left... What's the far left? Which, which teach hate... Okay. Against uh, a certain so it's the there middle are, uh, section who jurisdict on this yeah. far left and far right. And what's well, far left one, and far right? Okay, exactly. so one could justify, in answer to your point, one could justify far right as being anti a certain people. You could argue that far left is anti a certain country, perhaps. That's my interpretation of far left and far right. Okay. However... It's not mine, but there you go. Okay, but all right, so what is yours then? No, I don't think... I, don't, I think it's far too simplistic. I think, I think hate, hate speech... That the far left would hate, so they say, they hate capitalism. Does that make them hate, you know, haters? I mean, where, where do you define? How do you define it? I find the far left. All right. So well, there was awful. one thing that you said before. Or even there, left. Yeah. Okay, but there was one thing. Yes. <laughs> you just said everyone's entitled to their opinion. Well, of course they are. So you just also mentioned just now that it's done through education. Mm. What would you do to educate? How do you educate someone who doesn't want to be educated? <sighs> Good point. And are we going to educate people to see things our way? Is that education? They'll want to educate people to see things their way, whatever and way there is. And is that educating is. or is that inflicting your personal views on yes, someone? It is. Yes, it is, Phil. That's the problem. Yes, it is. I guess it goes back to this political correctness, you know? You will not. You will say this. And I think that's, that's equally as evil. Equally but as evil. There are, there are things that are good or partly good, which all political parties have good things and bad things about oh. them, but as long as they're not violently against people or a something that can cause great trouble, that's fine. fine. But if okay. you find there is a, a political party on either the far right or the far left which hates something to such ex- an extent they will cause damage to those people hmm. or persecute them, then surely they must be stopped. Okay, fine. But I do think it's important to stress that as far as the party in Germany is concerned, is whatever has been said in this discussion, we are not necessarily accusing that particular no, party we don't, we don't know. of doing anything that we have suggested that some far-right, far-left people might do. This is more about what we're pegging this discussion to, and just to make that clear. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, there we are. That's the end of this discussion this time, because our time is up, but with. We would like to thank our guests, founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbridge, and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us, and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews, or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue. I'm just back after a fascinating weekend in Italy at the Global Foundation Rome Roundtable. Amongst the 60 international participants were senior financiers, including the governors of the banks of England, France and Italy, spiritual leaders such as the Vatican Prefect of the Secretariat for the Economy and the Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town. Captains of industry, together with many senior politicians, a past Commonwealth Prime Minister, ambassadors and diplomats. It was truly a privilege to participate in a discussion on the alleviation of suffering in conjunction with people who genuinely care, who have the means and influence to make a difference. The foremost concerns of this roundtable were 
to eradicate forced labor from global supply chains, to improve economic empowerment outcomes for women worldwide, and to strengthen global community partnerships across business and faiths for mutual benefit and sustainable global development. Jewish religious law and moral doctrine covers all areas of commercial activity, derived from biblical verses and interpreted over the centuries, sometimes where Jewish communities have had autonomy and other times where they have depended on the fragile goodwill of their hosts, these laws have evolved with circumstance with a view to core guiding principles. They are realistic and workable. They provide security and prospects of growth for both employee and employer. They advance human dignity through the highest regard for all human life. They look for this generation to plant and resource a better world for the future generations which will follow. While we correctly prioritize the welfare and security of those closest to home, it is a mitzvah to participate in, even to play a leadership role in, and to set an example in bettering Hashem's world for all of humanity and all God's creation. In his address to us, Pope Francis stated, it is necessary above all for each of us personally to overcome our indifference to the needs of the poor. We need to learn compassion for those suffering from persecution, loneliness, forced displacement or separation from their families. We need to learn to suffer with those who lack access to health care or who endure hunger, cold or heat. This compassion, he said, will enable those with responsibilities in the worlds of finance and politics to use their intelligence and resources, not merely to control and monitor the effects of globalization, but also to help leaders at different political levels to correct its orientation wherever necessary. Such sentiments echo our own great teachers. In the words of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, when God created the world, he provided an opportunity for the work of his hands, man, to participate in his creation. The creator, as it were, impaired reality in order that mortal man could repair its flaws and perfect it. And in the words of Emeritus Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, as long as there is hunger, poverty and treatable disease in the world, there is work for us to do. As long as nations fight and men hate and corruption stalks the corridors of power, as long as there is hunger and homelessness, depression and despair, our task is not yet done. And we hear, if we listen carefully enough, the voice of God asking us, as he asked the first humans, where are you? Let us rise to the challenge with the biblical rejoinder, Hineni, here I am, ready to play my part. Thank you to Rabbi Jeremy Lawrence from Kinloss United Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Bernd Koshland, Martin Nyman, Alexandra Morris. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Judy Carberts and Jeremy Jacobs. And of course, you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>